Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to episode 563 with my guest Daniel Carcillo. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for, I don't know why I pronounce it, substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office, more like a waiting room. Uh, the website for this show is uh, metalpod.com. And if you're ever interested in a particular topic, just Google whatever keyword you're looking for and include the word metalpod, and that's that's the best way. I mean, you can do it at our website as well, but um, I just usually Google it. Let's dive into some some surveys with my with my cold my cold is co-hosting today i uh went and saw a concert last night with uh with my girlfriend we saw the strokes at the at the LA forum and they were originally scheduled for march 20th uh, 2020 so um it was worth the wait. It was an amazing, amazing concert. They're such a great band. So original. I think I'm getting old, though, because I really wanted to say to the band, does it need to be this loud? This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Onion Dillbread. And he writes about his anxiety. Thanks for the hand-me-down, Mom about his alcoholism and drug addiction. My grandfather's addiction is the monster under my bed. And then a snapshot from his life. Three years ago, when I started dating my fiance, I had a conversation with my mom telling her how excited I was to go on a trip with my new girlfriend in a few months. She replies, are you sure you'll still be together by then? You know, that's, that's all you had to describe, and we get a perfect picture of your mother. Uh, he writes, just for context, I've only had three girlfriends. 
It's easy to notice the toxic, quote, man-whore ideology coming from a parent, but when you've had as little partners as me, I knew she was just projecting her issues onto me in a very confusing and degrading way. Even to this day, I cannot express excitement or prospects I have or I will get that. Are you sure about that? I'm going to doubt the shit out of you kind of look. Growing up, my parents painted the picture of them being demigods, the perfect parents. They could do no wrong. As I age, I realize that they were almost always wrong. I feel bad saying all of this, but it feels like my support system, I believe to be so ironclad, is as feeble as a house of cards. P.S. They denied my ADHD and my anxiety my entire childhood, and I didn't get help until I was on my own. I see them taking care uh, I see them taking my little sister, who still lives with them, to therapy. Maybe I was the guinea pig and they learned from me? Question mark. But that poor girl is a clone of my mom's mental illness, and I hope she can learn to grow and break free from those mental bonds she is subjected to in that house and find happiness. I feel so shitty finally saying all of this. Thank you for for sharing that and I you know I just want to commend you on claiming your truth and I don't know anybody once they claim their truth that feels a hundred percent totally good about it because there's usually some kind of guilt we feel like we're throwing somebody under the bus there's grief there's sadness but you have seen you have gotten some clarity and, uh, you know, as they say, you stopped going to the hardware store for milk. You realized. I had a moment, too, where I realized in my relationship with my mom that there was like a joy kill aspect uh, to her where if I would be excited about something, she would, you know, find a way to poke a hole in it. Not always, but enough that I just, I would shut down around her. And that's a, that that sucks, whether that's in a friend or apparent, but it just sucks to really uh, not be able to share your joy with someone. And I wonder sometimes if the parent, you know, their intention is, oh, I don't want you to get overly excited and then be disappointed, so I'm going to protect you from that. Maybe that's what they're trying to do, but it, it, is, it is not good. And you can, you can quote me on the record saying that's not good. If that needs to go to the Library of Congress, so be it. This is from the love survey filled out by Nellie. And uh, Nellie writes, I love my best friend. She's taught me to open up and actually tell her how I'm feeling without fear of judgment. That is so awesome. That's winning the lottery. Having a friend or a family member or somebody from your support group that you can feel that with, that is, that's a lottery. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by, I know I'm going to butcher this, Lapis Lazuli. (laughs) Please, please don't mock me. Uh, Would you be able to do a podcast on borderline personality disorder? I find that it can be very hard to navigate through the world with this disorder. I've listened to your old ones and I enjoyed them, but for some reason I've had a hard time connecting to that podcast. How people feel emotions wasn't explained as well as I thought, and I would really like to hear another perspective on what BPD looks like for some people. 
I agree with you. Um, not that I wasn't able to connect to those episodes, but that it's a really important topic in people who struggle with borderline personality disorder, or as it's now called, emotional dysregulation disorder. They can feel really isolated and alone and ashamed. And um, yes, I will. I will make an effort to try to have more guests on that. Uh, that struggle with that. And thank you for uh, weighing in. This is also from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Ding Dong. Oh, I love your snack cakes. And uh, they write, why did you stop with the top 10 episodes? Uh, because I'm lazy. I wish there was a better way to find ap- episodes on Apple's podcast app. Yeah, it's, it is not the best way to search for episodes. Uh, I would do the old Google and including Metal Pod. Excuse me while I cough. <coughs> this is also from the Ask Paul Anything survey. And uh, Cinderella asks, By the way, how are your shoes fitting? I'm fully aware that you are not a licensed professional. You make that very obvious. So I'm not trying to get your professional advice. However, have you ever had to deal with a friend or family member that was suicidal? If so, how did you deal? My brother went to college across the country. He's my favorite person on earth, and I'm terrified I'm going to lose him to suicide. I researched what to do on those health websites, and there's no answer. I'm not expecting you to give me an answer either. Don't worry. But do you have any experience? My dad um, made a suicide attempt when he was in his 60s. I this would have been in the early to mid-90s, early 90s. And um, we attended some... He, he was uh, forced to go to rehab. They wouldn't release him from the psychiatric unit uh, unless he went directly to rehab. And we drove him to rehab on Christmas Eve, of course. Uh, and nobody talked about it in the car on the ride home. And uh, yeah, we went to a couple of uh, required family support group meetings at the at the rehab, and he never attempted it uh, again. So I don't know if I could weigh in on having someone who is actively suicidal. But my opinion is if you're not a mental health professional, um, you can give that person certainly love, but it's a serious thing that I believe needs serious professional help. Um, Whether it's a suicide hotline, um, the rules in different states vary, but generally... Um, somebody can only be involuntarily uh, committed if they are deemed a danger to themselves or others. So the person in many ways has to want to get help. Um, But what I would suggest is you getting help for yourself and the stress around that. And the National Alliance on Mental Illness is a great organization. It was created for the loved ones of people that battle mental illnesses, and uh, I believe the national website is nami.org. So that might be a good place to start, but sending you some love. 
to be a really isolating thing being the loved one of someone who is suffering. And then we feel guilty because we're like, why am I feeling bad? I'm not the one who's suffering, but we are. We are suffering because we are helpless and we love that person. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey. And, uh, oh, this is by the same person, Cinderella. Have you ever been to a psychic or a medium and do you believe in ghosts? You know, I tend to think that most psychics or mediums are full of shit and are predatory, but I could be wrong. I'm certainly leaving the door open that I don't know and uh, as as to whether or not I believe in ghosts. Uh, that I, I, I might believe. I might believe in that. I certainly believe in the movie Ghost. You've got to believe in that. Anybody that can make pottery so sexy... Oh, man. This is an awful moment filled out by Lisa. She writes, I recently connected with my spiritual team and ancestors. As awesome as that, sound, as that sounds, I also realized that they've witnessed every weird and horrible thing I've ever done in my life. Probably even watched me masturbate, which I've done a lot. And lot is in capitals. But that's okay. I know they love me and would never judge me. I assume that she did like a seance or something like that. Um, I think everybody imagines that. What if dead people are watching me jerk off? Oh, my God. But isn't that part of Grandma's job? You bake cookies, you babysit the grandkids, and then you you hover around the ceiling and you watch uh, somebody go to town on themselves. And you try to reserve judgment. This is an awful moment filled out. Uh, oh, this is also by Cinderella. Cinderella, you're getting a little greedy with the surveys. And uh, they share, uh, I'm happy that my father has started to go to AA meetings again after a few years. He says that he's doing this for himself and that he needs to learn to love and take care of himself. I'm happy for him and proud. The only thing is, I wish he wanted to do it for me. And, and first of all, thank you for sharing that. That's such an important point to make. And as somebody who is recovering from alcoholism and drug addiction, I can tell you that it is almost impossible to get or stay sober if we're not doing it for ourselves. But here's the good news. The good news is, is if we begin to let our our heart soften, we begin to learn how to handle our emotions like an adult. We learn to be helpful to others and not so selfish and fear-based. Then we can really truly begin to see the negative effect that we had had on other people and be happy that we're there now for those people and that we have different relationships for them. I hope that makes sense. We are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. They are licensed in all 50 states. Um, I I have tried uh, several of their counselors, 
my counselor, Donna, actually, who is no longer with uh, BetterHelp, so I'll be getting another another counselor soon. Um, she was awesome. She was awesome. And I tried a couple before her because I didn't want to get just one counselor and then just assume that all the rest of the counselors were like them. So I tried two or three before before her, and they were they were all great. Um, if you're interested in trying it out, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. And then uh, fill out a questionnaire. And based on your questionnaire, if they have a counselor that they feel is a good fit for you, they will match you up with one, and you can get 10% off your first month of uh, counseling and you need to be over 18. If you're not 18, they will direct you to teencounseling.com, and then you can get the ball rolling on that. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times book review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And then finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Joe's Pizza. And he writes, I had a cycling accident bad enough that I cracked a helmet. The new one I bought has speakers built in. I was out on a ride and stopped at a street crossing as you were reading surveys. I don't remember which episode it was, but the survey kept saying pussy. I had my helmet on full blast while there were two families with young children hearing you say pussy over and over again. One of the children asked their dad what that meant. As the light went green, I took off laughing, feeling bad for that dad. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lower. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. Let humans do this to each other. Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. 
I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with uh, Daniel Carcillo, who is an ex-NHL player, uh, mental health advocate, uh, concussion sufferer, where where are you at today, man? How you feeling? I know depression is uh, kind of something that that fucks with you from from time to time, or is it always kind of there? No, it definitely wasn't always there. Um, I uh, obviously spent a lot of time over my life hitting my head, uh, both concussive and subconcussive. So I think over time it evolved into this combination of just being in an extremely toxic culture and then obviously getting hit in the head uh, and the body every day doesn't bode well uh, for symptoms. And eventually it just caught up to me. You know, it started to catch up to me the first time I felt any type of anxiety or depression was when I was um, 25 in my career and I really had to make a choice. I leaned on numbing it out with opiates and things that were easily accessible rather than looking at it and dealing with it. Um, and then it resurfaced again uh, later in my career. Um, and I just have spent the last seven years trying to get a handle on my quality of life and my brain health. And, um, you know, you asked at the beginning of the question, like how I'm feeling. And number one, I'm not getting it hit in the head or the body right. anymore. And so the things that I'm doing seem to be having this cumulative effect where I am by far the best healthiest, happiest, most connected version of myself, for sure. Well, that's that's great to hear, man. I, uh, I see in the news a lot, people that this, it, it takes them down. Um, mm-hmm. Steve Monador was a, a good friend of yours. Um, and talk, talk about CTE and Steve. Yeah, so right along those same lines, Steve was able to come into my life at a time where I was really searching for somebody to show me how to live a happy, fulfilling, uh, sober lifestyle. And that came at the perfect moment, you know, his support. And and since he'd been on that journey for seven or eight years, when I got to Chicago and we became teammates, it was easy to go to, to meetings with him. It was easy to integrate into life without substances, which can be extremely different for people and, and difficult. But he showed me how to live that happy, fulfilling life and um, really helped to bring out a lot of confidence in myself. You know, one thing that I was attracted to, to, to Steve about was just the way that he carried himself, you know, the way that he spoke in every conversation, how comfortable he was everywhere. And uh, attraction rather than promotion. Yeah, just there's something about him, right? And and I think we we see that. I, I'm sure people see that, right? They see something that draws them to somebody that they just want to know more. 
Um, and I was, that was, that was how our friendship started really. And, and then blossomed over the next three, four years into, um, just, uh, a lot of dialogue about like what's next, you know, especially that last year when I saw him go through four concussions in, in 12 weeks and get cleared and, and everything that happened with the Blackhawks is a difficult time. Um, but we were, we were searching for what we were going to do next. And I think that it was, you know, something that was weighing on us and important for us to figure out together. Um, and I think that was my son. You want to say hi? Hello. Hello. I think that, um, um, so, you know, I, I really, we connected on a, on a personal level and then we went through the same struggles together on a, um, on the, on the brain injury side and that strengthened our friendship. Um, but it was, uh, man, uh, one of the most difficult things that I've had to watch, um, and, and be a part of is somebody's deterioration after contracting neurodegenerative disease, which is progressive. And right now we don't know how to stop that. I think we have some, some ideas of how to possibly prevent and minimize, um, but not to the level that, that Steve got to, because Steve, you know, was cleared for 19 concussions in a professional hockey league that 19. says that, mm -hmm, wow. that says that they don't have any issues or, or that the, the issue isn't repetitive head trauma. And, and so what I proposed to the NHL being the only league left on earth to not admit a link between repetitive head trauma and neurodegenerative disease like CT, like ALS, like dementia is, you know, has there ever been a case of CT found in somebody without a history of repetitive head trauma? And there hasn't. <laughs> so um, just like you can't definitive, they just use the same, narrative as smoking and cancer right um that definitive link is yet to be established but we know that smoking is is bad right so hopefully with more research and more understanding and, and more pressure to be quite honest with litigation uh, that will change um and you know back to what i've learned from steve i mean i've learned everything everything from that friendship you know and how to um move forward now in a positive manner rather than what I was doing before I found my recovery. Um, you know, it started about two and a half years ago when I really started to turn the corner, when I started to use supplementation and live a holistic lifestyle. Um, but I mean, before that it was, uh, it was a journey that was lonely and difficult. Um, and a lot of anger, frustration, sadness came out and, Really now it's, you know, this medicine that I've used, um, it includes psychedelics, um, uh, has really shifted my perspective of my injury, my world, the NHL, um, uh, just everything. It's changed everything, right? And, and I think that's one of the keys to my recovery, to be honest with you. It, it's really amazing what a prism uh, mental illness can filter everything through and addiction as well. Uh, mm -hmm. It, it warps everything. And it's so hard to rely solely on the brain that got us in the place that we are 
to get us out of the place where we are. And community and friendships uh, and asking for help is so important. What, what did it give me a sense of what your bottom was like with the substance abuse? Give me a snapshot or two of how ugly it got. And then, uh, you know, the, the shell of defiance being cracked a little bit. Yeah. Um, at 25. So I was in the substance abuse program uh, that the NHL has, um, after I, I, um, uh, got into trouble, uh, at 21 and then at 25, just kind of living a really fast and ugly lifestyle, uh, was had fractured relationships with family, wanted nothing to do with people. I thought I was, you know, God's gift. And I really, I mean, the role that I was playing, I was fighting people that were, you know, sometimes 40, 50 pounds heavier than me that could really do some damage. So it was easier for me at that time to live recklessly both on and off the ice and not think. Right. So I used substances to numb and to be able to, to do that because that's not who I am as a person. That's never been who I, who I, who I was, but this is a different, you step on that ice, you're stepping into a different realm. I have different rules that I'm able to operate on and I am able to hit you with this. I'm able to hit you with my stick. I was very unpredictable. And um, that stems from a lot of the trauma that I sustained in, in coming up in hockey yeah. as a minor. You were, and, you were uh, given the, the name car bomb by, uh, <laughs> by your fellow players, correct? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, uh, that came in Philly. And, you know, that was one of my weapons, though, was um, up until 25, nobody knew what I would do because I didn't know what I was going to do, to be quite honest with you. You know, there was, uh, there was a really, really bad year that shaped Daniel Carcillo into Carbon, And that's always how it happens. It's always stems from some type of traumatic event where then I'm, I'm obviously, I'm all of a sudden acting totally different. Like my friends don't really recognize me. My family doesn't recognize me over the years as it progressively gets worse and weighs on me even more and more and more. And, um, the way that I dealt with it was a lot of, you know, drinking, um, the opiates were just at that time, you know, this, we're talking 2006, handing them out like chiclets, you know? And, uh, so it was easy, um, to get access and, and really easy to live that lifestyle. But at 25, um, you know, it works until it doesn't work, mm -hmm. you know, especially those substances. Right. And then all of a sudden I just started to crash. I started to fail. I started to play less. I started to get hurt more. Uh, you could just see the writing was on the wall that if I didn't change my lifestyle and my habits, I was not going to be an NHL player for very much longer. And I, I don't know if I'd still be here. Um, it was, you know, got to that point. Um, and then that's in my career, you know, then I cleaned up. I went to the Stanley cup finals. My last five times I asked for help. Like you mentioned, right. I went to rehab on my own. I, I, I detoxed all that stuff. And, and, uh, and I woke up to the, to, to who I really am. And then I was able to make, um, you know, bridge those gaps with my family and apologize for all the things I wanted to apologize for and really change. And then now all of a sudden though, I'm like, Oh boy, now I can't fight the same way. Now I can't play the game the same way because I'm actually awake to the damage I'm doing to myself, to others. Um, how do I do this? How do I perform at this level and still be car bomb that every team still wants me to be? And so what you see in the last five years is just me trying to be a good teammate, 
um, walk that line a little bit more so to, to the right direction. Uh, and then I went to the Stanley cup finals, you know, um, I'm from uh, four times. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Four times, but with three different teams, you know? Um, and so, you know, that's like really important for me to always look back on and reiterate even to myself because, um, nobody's ever done that. And like, I changed who I was as a person. And, and, and so I think you get rewarded when you're living your life the right way. And, um, but then, you know, then things, it's like life, right. There's peaks and valleys. I mean, um, then I, then I, you know, went I hit another Valley, right. Um, where it was retirement forced retirement. It wasn't, um, you know, although I made the decision to walk away because I saw a lot of the same symptomology in myself that I saw in Steve. And then obviously Steve was found to have neurodegenerative disease and CTE. Uh, I was like, wow, well, I mean, I'm experiencing that now I'm, I'm 30, uh, 31. It's scared the heck out of me. And, um, and, and so for four years, you know, from 2015 to 19, I, I looked, man, I spent $300,000. I did everything everything I could to manage symptomology and to look for treatments to manage, you know, we talk a lot about traumatic brain injury. It's, it's TBI just related symptoms. The only issue with when you're dealing with post post concussion syndrome, I was dealing with slurred speech, headache, head pressure, insomnia, impulse control issues, memory issues, anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, heightened cortisol levels, low free testosterone, uh, other than that, it. other than that, you were okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like, it's just different. TBI is, is, is different. There's neurological with cell damage, uh, issues that you have to deal with this physiological that I mentioned, and then central nervous system problems. And so, um, I remember, you know, this was two years ago, four years into this journey, um, uh, thinking I'd tried everything. So becoming pretty hopeless. And I was the guy who was trying to advocate for different things. Hey, go try this. This didn't work for me, but still go try this because it, it could work for you. Um, got to a point where I was became extremely suicidal. Um, uh, the depression, the anxiety was just at an intensity that I didn't deal with anymore. And then I started to feel people tiptoeing around me. And that really, I looked at my kids, I have three young kids, six, four, and, and three. And I was like, man, do I, I know a lot of people view suicide as, as a selfish act, but it could be a selfish act to spare others. You know, that's the way that I was kind of viewing it, where it was like, let me take myself out of the equation so that my kids don't see how unstable I am emotionally. Um, so that so that my kids could have a good life so that, you know, um, and so I started to make plans to take my own life, um, over the course of the, the next like three or four weeks. Um, and again, I don't know why this invite came, but the invite came to the farm to go learn, uh, just about possibly one more thing that I didn't know about. And I'm just, thank gosh, I took that lifeline, um, because it saved my life. It was the most difficult thing I've ever had to surrender to the psychedelic experience, but it saved my life. And when you say, sure. you say the farm, what are you speaking about? Just a farm um, where, you know, you can learn about CBD, functional mushrooms, 
growing your own fruit, vegetables, living a holistic lifestyle, hiking, meditation, um, you know, these, these holistic interventions that you can make, um, including psychedelic medicines, um, that, um, happened in a decriminalized city, you know, and, and, uh, so from that standpoint, other than going to unregulated Jamaica or something like that, the Netherlands, um, you know, I felt in a really safe environment with the right set setting and dosage and the right guide. And, um, like I said, it, it you know, mental health, anxiety, depression to me were, were these loops that kept getting solidified stronger every single day that I lived in them. And what seemed to happen right away um, was number one, when I took this medicine being psilocybin, it showed me the hell that I was creating for myself. And I, so I had to live through that. It puts a mirror right in front of your face that you can't walk away from. And so people call that a bad trip. I call that saving my own life. <laughs> Thank gosh, this medicine showed me that because although being difficult two and a half hours of that, it showed me who the problem was. And, and then it also showed me how I could fix it, you know, and it, and it all starts here with me. It doesn't start with anybody else with me and the way that I view this world and my relationships and how I think and how I'm attentive to my own recovery. Am I prioritizing sleep diet? These other things that have such a huge influence into how we operate. So I'm the type of person that likes a little punishment. I, I like to be uncomfortable and I, I've been uncomfortable a lot in my life, right? And so these ceremonies really helped me break out of that mold and out of that loop. And so, and then we're, we're seeing this in, in fMRIs and we're seeing this, um, this being tracked and, and validated by science that it can wake up right and left brain hemispheres and it can help break up those destructive thought patterns that we, that are embedded. And then the amazing thing that can happen if you have the right guide, it can be, and the right intention, which I did, I just wanted to recover my brain health. I just wanted to recover some semblance of myself and, and it did that. This medicine did that for me. And, um, on a spiritual level, it, um, it was unbelievable, um, uh, that a handful of mushrooms, um, given in the right context, um, in the right dosage, with the right person with the right intention at the right time in my life could, could do that to me. And I mean, that was two and a half years ago and it's, I am still amazed every time I tell the story and I don't tell it much. Um, so you don't have to do it regularly. This was kind of a, a one-time thing for you. A big dose. Yeah. I mean, I've been on a really strict regimen. That's, that's what we're taking through the FDA clinical trials of high dose uh, psilocybin therapy um, in combination with low dose. Uh, so microdosing, um, but that's in combination with other, patented neuroprotectants, um, and then other, uh, adaptogens and other mushrooms, you know, that, um, again, it's just a different type of therapy because of what I mentioned to you, the, the cascade of, of downstream sequelae that comes and symptomology that comes. So, so no, it's been a very poignanted regimen. There's months off, there's days off, there's, there's been weeks off. Um, uh, every single week you take time to take off because then, you know, you don't build up a tolerance to this natural medicine, number one. Um, and it gives you a chance to, 
to live life without it, which I think is extremely important. This is just one tool in my toolbox. This is not my crutch. This and, is and, just uh, yeah, something really kick started. You know? I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, for a lot of us who battle addiction and mental illness and other struggles, there there is no one fix it. And almost none of it happens immediately. And no. it's just a daily routine that becomes the foundation of our living as much as it might be a pain in the ass or um, inconvenient uh, especially mm. when we're depressed, you know, when it's hard to get out of bed, the thought of going and exercising is just like, what? Why would mm. I want to do that? And I still have, I still have those days where I think like that. You know what I mean? Like uh, that, that, but that to me, you know, I try to, I'm more present in my body. So I like recognize now what my triggers are. And, and and, and if I do spend a day where I sleep in, which, which some people call depression, I, if you're saying that you're depressed that day, that's depression and I'm depressed or I'm not feeling it today is totally different to me. Right. Um, and, and if it's not, if it's not chronic and then I can recognize um, that this is affecting my life, you know, just me recognizing that, that's enough, man. That's, that's the issue that I have with, you know, um, like mental health as a whole, the way that we describe it. Right. Uh, cause we think I'm sure, you know, depression when I was dealing with it, yeah, like I was in it, you know, and it, nobody could talk to me, you know, and, but I kept telling myself the fact that I was in it and that I know I'm in it is enough because I was also searching. I was, I was still actively trying to to be proactive and, and get a handle on what was happening to me. So, um, you know, what, what we're trying to create, right. And what I'm trying to create, I'm not trying to be, um, a life coach and I'm not trying to be perfect. Cause I'm not, uh, I, I still get stressed and I still yell and, and, you know, but what I don't have is like, I don't deal with these things on a regular basis anymore. Right. I don't deal with impulse control and yes, I still get sad. You know, I just, I don't call it depression. Um, I allow myself to feel sad, you know, and, and um, I feel different. I feel like what happened to me is, is the biggest blessing on earth. And I had to go through a lot and I just think, whoever my higher power is knows I can handle a lot. Mm -hmm. And so it threw a lot at me. And, and then now I, I, um, you know, I think with the messaging, we just have to take it easy, you know, and like, it's little by little, little, little steps. And um, hopefully this conversation, you know, somebody hears it and it helps them. Um, and then, and it sparks something like when I learn something new, and I try to learn something new every day. Like I get really excited, you know? Um, so like that, that those juices are flowing and my frontal lobes are activated. And, um, you know, that's the exciting thing about this therapy is, is it has a lot of the same characteristics as just regular depression. And, and I think that it can um, really shift perspective, you know? And, and once we do that, um, you know, with the right and left brain hemispheres communicating and really 
the, the anti-inflammatory benefits as well, um, I think are, you know, and then little to no liability and, and safety, a, a nice safety profile with um, no crippling side effects. It, it can be extremely, it can transform the way that we, um, the way that we treat, you know, um, if people want to look at it, like if, if you'd like to, <clears throat> so I read this analogy, which is really amazing. Um, you know, we continue to manage symptoms, same with TBI, right? Like I can't even research traumatic brain injury because nobody's done that work yet because all we seem to want to do the healthcare system is manage, you know, let's just make it a little bit calmer for this person for the rest of their life. I'm not interested in selling people that I'm interested in helping people that have depression, look at their depression and, and figure out why that is taking over their life. Because if I can walk upstream and, and talk to people before they jump in, I want to keep pulling them out of the river, you know, downstream, like, let's figure that out because there's always some underlying reason. Right. And, and I think if people are willing to look at that, Oh my gosh. I mean, the, the recovery that I've seen people have over the last two and a half years and in, in, in helping them, you know, it's been, if I could ever get addicted to something, it's that look yeah. on someone's face when they, it, uh, it, <laughs> when they the, come out of it, you know, the, the feeling of meaning and purpose in sharing our struggles with others, uh, it's such a surprise. And to me, that's where, you know, the benevolent force in the universe, call it your higher power, God, whatever, that's where it exists. And when we're in that depressed place, we never imagine that the universe has good surprises for us. We just mm -hmm. imagine it's all going downhill. It's going to be a shit show. And why not just bail now? Man, like me and my wife, I've talked about this before. Like I used to say, I used to just always recite that, like, I'm going to find something. I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep looking. I know I'm not that good right now, but I'm, I, you know, I will figure this out. I will figure this out for survivors for first selfishly for myself. And I need to be selfish. You need to be selfish. Everybody needs to be selfish when it comes to their mental health, because without this and this me embodying this energy now that I'm putting out, it would have kept going bad for me. And, and my wife couldn't support or, or be confident in, in that I was there to support her at all times and our kids. So I had to get healthy for me. So I had to get selfish and I had to figure that out, you know, and then, um, you know, once I figured it out, um, or before I figured it out, excuse me, it was always like, I would recite it. And, and, I, and sometimes I'd have the voice in my head saying, what are you talking about? man? like, look at you, you look like shit, you know, this is BS. And then I would say it again. I'm like, no, you, you know, we're going to figure this out. You know, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to find something and I'm going to be able to tell people about it. And, um, for whatever reason, you know, that, that happened, but I really believe, and it's the same thing that I manifest now, like with, with our company, you know, I remember sitting 10 months ago being like, I, Mike Tyson would be an amazing strategic advisor for what we're trying to do for TBI mm -hmm. and psychedelics. And I'm boom, boom, like, talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. Five weeks later, we had Mike Tyson as a strategic advisor. 
you know, all of the things that I've spoken into existence and that I've really wanted, I continue to speak about it. You could ask my wife, she tells me to shut up all the time, but I won't, you know, because any chance I get an opportunity to talk about it and put it out there, I know it's going to come back, you know? And, um, so that's, I mean, that's a simple thing that we can all do is be defiant in the, in the face of, of, of these, these voices, like we all, I think have these internal conversations. Right. Um, and that, that's also, I think more normal than not. I know not a lot of people talk about it. Um, but I really do believe, you know, we're the only ones who are on earth that can think about thinking. So, um, we are special and, and everybody is special. And I think that there's, um, there's ways out. There's, there's ways out of the darkness for everybody. We just have to, uh, you know, we got to keep talking about it. And I'm, I'm appreciative of platforms I, like yours, man. You thank know? you. I, and that's where I think patience and uh, gentleness with oneself are so important. You know, if this, the struggle of, uh, you know, managing addiction and depression uh, over my lifetime has taught me anything, it's that it is not on my schedule when I get better, but I can choose to take a nap, be gentle with myself. One of the things that's helped me is to look at depression as just a flu of my brain. You know, on any given day, I wouldn't beat myself up if I had the physical flu and, you know, wanted to to cancel an appointment. And obviously it's, it's different for every person. Some people can push through it. Um, But others uh, like me, sometimes I just need to go, Hey, you know, today's just going to be a, a, a chill day. Yeah, man. I mean, do you like, so when you think like that, do you go get a massage? Do you go like do something for, uh, for Paul? You know, like, do you do that? Yeah. Sometimes I, I do. Yeah. Uh, phone calls are important. Um, yeah, yeah. And that, that phone feels so heavy on the days (laughs) (laughs) because I'm sure, as you know, one of the symptoms of depression is a difficulty in describing it, which makes me even more depressed or even knowing if I'm feeling depressed, because a lot of times I experience numbness, which to me brings in so many other secondary factors, you know, well, I'm not feeling sad. I'm not feeling angry. I don't want to cry. What am I complaining about? Maybe I'm just lazy. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that's the mantra that the mean part of my brain loves to latch onto. And it's taken me years to be able to say, you know what, I'm not feeling myself. I'm going to take baby steps today. You know, maybe I'll just walk around the block. I don't feel like working out. Mm. And that to me has been an important part that that self-love, because I think so many of us blame ourselves for having depression or anxiety. Mm -hmm. And that to me is just gasoline on the, on the fire. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point, it's, uh, it's what works for you, you know? Um, and I, yeah, my internal voice was like, was always negative, but like, again, it's like, I needed that, man. I liked it, you know? And that's what, that's what kind of like, got me going and that's just because of my upbringing and and being called you know every name in the book to get motivated by coaches teammates you know just my upbringing right and so yeah 
uh, finish your thought, but I wanted to ask you about, you know, to go back to uh, when you were a kid and an adolescent and, and mm. questions about that. Did you have a thought you wanted to finish? Um, no, no, just, um, no, we can, we can, we can go back. Yeah, for sure. Um, when did yeah, you my, go ahead? Go I was going to ask you when you had the feeling that you might uh, be able to make it to the NHL. Uh, that was like, I don't know, 13, maybe 14 years old. Um, I played double A my whole life. Uh, everybody in Canada plays triple A, which is the highest tier. You don't necessarily get looked at in double A. Uh, so that 14 year, I made the jump uh, to play triple A. I thought I had it. Um, you know, things open up, right? Like there was one spot on the best team in the GTHL and we ended up winning everything and got a lot of eyes on me. The longer you play, uh, higher you get drafted and ended up, you know, working towards um, going to a lot of like OHL camps and then university visits. And at, at that age of 14, like I committed, you know, I was either, I was going to be a lawyer or um, and go to school and, and apply myself there or, um, try this hockey thing. And, and, uh, I was never a kid that grew up watching, idolizing, thinking I was going to be an NHL player. Um, I used it as like a good anger management tool, the game anyway. And, um, yeah, that was really when I started to take it seriously. Um, 15 rolls around, you know, you're, you're out to either going to university or the OHL and you got to make a decision. Um, and then I just, yeah, I chose to go to the, to the OHL route. And, um, which team did you play for the sting? Sarnia sting. sting yeah. 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 The sting. And like I was, um, and still am a very sensitive, introspective type of, uh, person and thinker. And, and, um, you know, although most people know me for the toothless psycho that I was on the ice in Philly and, and beating people up, um, I'm opposite, total opposite off the ice. And, that was shaped by, in in large part, uh, this trauma that I sustained. It should have been, you know, the best year of my life. Um, but uh, my draft year was the most, one of the most difficult years um, of my life. I, I got drafted to the NHL, um, you know, 72nd or 73rd overall, but uh, endured uh, a lot of sexual, physical, emotional um, abuse at the hands of... Uh, teammates coaches um it was you know there's a there's a class action lawsuit going on now to make sure that something like this never happens again in the ohl which is pretty prevalent very well known you know like what are you complaining about that's just hazing but uh again it just not like i think back to my my journey through this life and what i've endured and then all of the successes right and then like they're all they all kind of even out to allow me to be in this position today to actually have people listen, you know, and, and, and then create instead of just talking, which is great. I'm still doing that. It's, it's all about, you know, actually building because you got to build on this side and you, and, you know, I'm getting visibility into like a, an industry of pharmaceutical drug development that is, um, interesting, you know, um, and, uh, and, and I, I've, you know, been blessed to have been through it all, 
You know, I really do believe that. Like, thank gosh that that experience happened to me. It's difficult. Um, but man, that formed me into car bomb who then that's the reason I got all the concussions and then the anxiety and the depression. And, and then, you know, who I am as a person is somebody that always sticks up for people and, um, and myself. And, um, you know, I, that's just kind of what I'm trying to do now is, is bring, whether it's TBI related or not, it's just neurological, you know, neurological wellness, health, um, you know, the way that we think and, 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 um, and then how that informs our experiences in life. And then, and then, um, how we can, if we're not happy with it, shift that, you know, but like shift it quickly too. Cause for me, it, still today, right. I still have to be cognizant of the fact that I'm not, um, that this, that I could become, I could become depressed or, or I could experience depression again or anxiety. Um, if I let things slide. Um, and so when I see myself isolating, like if I have the thought today before this podcast, like, oh, I don't want to do this, uh, but I'm going to do it anyway. Cause I'm committed to it. I didn't have that thought, but if I did, be like, yeah, what is that? You know, I immediately, I start questioning, what is that? And then if I start looking at other things, maybe it's something upstairs, maybe it's with my family, maybe it's, you know, something in the business that I'm not paying attention to, like, what is it? I start looking for it before it becomes, oh, well, now with the isolation, guess what? I'm not sleeping. And I'm staying up an hour past my bedtime. That's a problem for me as a TBI survivor. I need sleep. Um, oh, and then I'm also under eating or maybe I'm overeating. Like those are my three things, man. If I see those, any of those creep in, in any way, shape or form, I know I have to look internally to figure out what the heck is going on at this point in time. This stuff doesn't just arise from nowhere. Right. And, and so that's the process that I use now, this medication that I'm on, that we're developing allows me to become the observer. And it really allows me to view, Oh, Hey, look, you're, you're, you're doing that again is maybe, maybe there's something that you, maybe there's someone you need to call. Maybe there's something you need to look at. Maybe there was an oversight, maybe. So, um, that's what I really love about this tool that I'm using and I use it in conjunction with exercise. Not every morning. I'm not, it's been like, I'm probably the heaviest I've ever been right now, but I'm okay saying it because that can be changed. You know, I'm not going to beat myself up about that. Um, and, um, you know, so that's kind of, that's the lens that I take now. Right. Um, yeah. So, uh, I'm curious about the, the mental strain or the routine, the pressure of coming up and finding that your role is a third or fourth line guy that's an agitator, you know, yeah. where it's not your authentically who you are. Were, were you defined as a skill player when you were in juniors? Uh, yeah, I scored 30 goals a year. Yeah, I got, uh, you know, you don't get drafted 70 second or so I think it was 73rd overall on the best draft there ever was in the NHL. Um, the most deep draft by being an enforcer. So I was both right. Like I played this game in junior. I only fought five times in three years. 
So I wasn't a fighter. Um, but I, I ran through people. Um, when you got hit by me, you knew it. And I also knew that from who I am and then how you have to act in the game, sometimes at the adult level, as I graduated to the AHL, you're going to have to fight, man, you know, and, uh, I just learned it, you know, and I was okay with doing it because of that year that I, I had a lot of pent up anger. (laughs) So, um, and to be honest, like we spoke about before, I didn't care if I got hit, man, I didn't care, you know, and that's dangerous, you know, fighting somebody that, that can take hits and, and doesn't care, you know? Um, so, so you mental, didn't, you wouldn't have pre-game anxiety about, Oh, I got to pair off with so-and-so. No, man, not those first six years. I couldn't wait to rip somebody's face off. Oh my you know? God. And, yeah. and it's still in me, you know, right. like, like that, like it's, it's still in me, you know, but I just don't hit people anymore because there's different rules out here, but I hit different ways. Right. I, with my mind, I problem solve. I, I beat people. I see things now uh, in this in this business and, and what I'm doing and what I'm trying to create and changing healthcare. Like that's the way that I punch now. I, I'm not going to I'm not going to highlight what's wrong with the NHL anymore. I'm going to just create and then they'll have to answer questions. Why a former NHL player is now the CEO of a company focusing solely on improving traumatic brain injury and care thereof, right. With the WBC, with Mike Tyson. So that, that's what I am solely focused on now. And, and, uh, but you know, um, a big part of me, do I wish that I could, you know, go and fight again some days, but, um, I just do it, do it a little bit differently now, you know? Who was your least favorite person to square off against? Well, the guys that I knew I was going to take some from. So um, I tried to stay away from guys that could end my life or break my jaw or my career. But um, there were a couple that I had to fight. Um, uh, like Radius Ivanis is like 6'9", 280. I heard earlier that year that you and, did like and, 17 one-arm pull-ups at training camps. So, oh my God. Um, and you are, what, what uh, height and weight were you when you were playing? I was listed at six foot, 210, but I was 5'10 and a half, 190, 195, soaking wet. Yeah. Yeah. So him and then Darcy Hordichuk, big boys, you know, that could really hurt you. Um, so... Was there, to, was there ever an overlap between you and Probert? No, no. I mean, Bob was a really good player. Yeah. Um, he was like a classic heavyweight, um, but he could also play. I wasn't a heavyweight. I was, uh, I was this new class or new breed of a guy who could change the energy of a game with a hit, um, play on first, second line, move up and down, not a classic traditional top six forward not in the NHL anyway, flashes and moments of it. Um, but really, yeah, just uh, somebody who could move up and down the lineup and uh, do most things, you know, um, not a special teams guy, but, uh, but yeah, that's how I kind of build myself. I could skate, I could hit, I could fight, I could shoot. I'm not the best at, at any of those, maybe fighting for sure. I was one of the best at my size. Um, and, uh, but but yeah, that's that's kind of what I prided myself on on uh, how I, I modeled my game after after those things, you know. 
what did it feel like? It's such a fucking cliche question, mm. but what did it feel like hoisting the Stanley Cup for the first time? Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was okay. Um, yeah, it was, you know what? Like I get more joy out of like watching other people, you know? Um, I'm a little bit different in the way that I would never got enamored by hockey. And it was probably because of that first year where it was like, like one foot in one foot out, you know, let's, let's try to make as much um, money as possible and, and get out with, being as healthy as possible if that's if that and um i i imagine that's a lot of guys thought or at least their second thought and maybe their first thought is that they got brainwashed by hockey night in canada and and all these other things where it's like hockey's a family and it it really is all about this 35 pound trophy and once you win it well then you get that's the culmination all i need is if i just get my name on this cup i'm gonna be happy forever right you know and uh because i have I have heard guys share that the next day they felt an emptiness because they were expecting something to, to fill them that, that it couldn't. No, no. I mean, and the world keeps turning, you know, and really, I mean, I wouldn't put the NHL up with the top four sports anymore. You know, I think soccer's far and beyond surpassed them. Um, So, I mean, if you don't live in Canada and you don't go home a lot, not a lot of people really see it, notice it. Um, so, you know, I, listen, there were a lot of things going on in 2013 in respect to, to Steve and, and um, just a lot of things happening. So, and then I was angry because I wasn't playing. Um, and so, you know, I was like, there was some part of me that uh, just wondered why I was even there. Um, and then, yeah, after winning, it was like, I was more happy that my bros were there and that like, like Taves won again and Kane, these guys who like love the game, like, and, and apply everything they have to it. You know, I was just a guy who was kind of like coming off the street, making playlists, enjoying it while I was there, not taking it too seriously and also enjoying like my life away from the rink, you know, music, concerts, um, food, um, just, you know, art, everything that the city had to offer. Uh, when you were playing, who were some some players that you think were really underrated? Um, I don't know. I again, I was like, I don't know, man. This might sound. Um, I I didn't really like study people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I there were players that like took my breath away were watching them, like Kaner and um, a couple other guys that are just. Uh, that were really fun to watch from the bench, you know? Um, but I couldn't put my finger on, on, on any like players okay. that I thought were really underrated. Okay. Yeah. Uh, anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? Uh, you have a foundation, uh, chapter yeah. five and the, what is the name of uh, your company? Yeah. So chapter five foundation. Um, and then uh, we sauna health. So W E S A N A. Yeah. Sauna is heal in Latin and, uh, we heal, um, is something that, you know, like you mentioned, just community building that, that support system, uh, around concussion survivors, ultimately mental illness and mental health survivors. And, um, 
yeah, we can find us, you know, you can find our website um, and, and we are researching through the FDA pathway and health Canada pathway um, alternative treatments, including technologies and psychedelic medicines like psilocybin to treat um, TBI related anxiety and depression. So, yeah. Well, thanks for, thanks for being on the, uh, on the team and being uh, a great advocate. And I'm glad we finally got a chance to talk. Yeah, me too. Thank you for having me. I always love getting to talk to uh, NHL guys. I always feel like a like a little kid, even though they're younger than me. I'm just, uh, I don't know. I'm glad we got to uh, connect. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Uncle Sam's Misguided Stepchild. He identifies as straight, uh, but he qualifies saying, but I think I would go anyway if I found a deep enough love. He is in his 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts acts with other children as a child, all unaware of what sex or sexual abuse was. He's been physically abused and emotionally abused. Getting the belt from my stepfather never seemed like a punishment. It felt like abuse and above and beyond any type of parenting seen as acceptable in the 80s. Emotional abuse was in the same manner between my stepfather and myself. Any positive experiences with the abusers? As adults, we genuinely get along, and as he is older now, I am sure he probably regrets it. Darkest thoughts. I'm comforted that I can leave this life anytime I want to. I often linger on suicidal plans and the relief death would offer. I think that's pretty common. You know, at least I know that, that when I'm in that place where I just, everything feels overwhelming, there, there is a certain comfort. And knowing that that's a, a possibility. And some people don't want to hear that. Some people are like, oh, you need to change your attitude or you know, need to do this or, you know, do that. Well, fuck off. Was that a little harsh? Darkest secrets. I fantasize about leaving my wife and children, house success, and taking up a transient life on the streets in dumpsters, living for drugs and alcohol. Living a half-life of highs on heroin sounds better than a full life of de- depression, 
PTSD, and anxiety. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I often have fantasies of my wife cheating or having sex with other men. A huge insecurity, but I also wish she was more sexually active, even if it was with others. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? When I hear about other people committing suicide, I grieve, not because they are gone, but because they had the strength to do it, and I do not. Wow. I know that you are not alone in in feeling that, and I hope you don't feel guilty. You know, we feeling guilty about what we're feeling is such a waste of time and so unkind to ourselves. You know, for me, the thing to focus on is in what way can I deal with this feeling that I'm feeling? Sometimes there's nothing to do except just feel it or experience, but sometimes maybe sharing what you're feeling with somebody else or doing something nice for yourself. What, if anything, do you wish for? Peace and a time machine. Maybe a time machine with a big peace sign on it, but you can only go back to Woodstock and smell people's B.O. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, but my veteran affairs social worker got too busy with psychology to validate or empathize. That sucks. That sucks. Because it feels so good to feel validated or feel like somebody's feels you how do you feel after writing these things down i wonder if i look as miserable as this survey makes me sound you don't sound miserable you you sound like a sensitive person who experiences the overwhelming moments that life brings and you are a war veteran on top of it so i can't imagine i can't imagine Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? It's it's worth it to go and get help, even if you're a tough war veteran. And even if it is so, you can make an educated decision to give up your fight for life. That is a, you know, brutally honest survey. And that's one of the reasons why I created these surveys is, you know, we need a place where people don't sugarcoat it. You know, sometimes we're so afraid we're going to bum somebody out. And sometimes when I'm putting the surveys together, it'd be like, oh, no, that's that, that that's too heavy. But, you know, I didn't start this podcast just to you know, be entertaining. I started this because I, when I was in the depths of my depression and addictions, I felt so hopeless and I thought I was the only one that felt that way. This is a happy moment filled out by Val, who identifies as gender fluid, and they write, When I leave the door open to my bathroom, uh, or slightly ajar, my cat will come and sit by the opening and stare at me while I pee. It's nice to have the company. He will also, in the evenings when I'm stressed and studying late, start chasing his tail every night at least once, making me laugh and making it all better. Love it. I think I must laugh 40 times a day at just the shit Gracie does. Even if even if it's just cuddling in, in bed and just... <laughs> or the, just in, the entitled look on her face. If I'm not scratching her in the right place, she'll start kicking her, her, her back legs like a rabbit, like trying to direct my hand where she wants to be <laughs> petted. And I totally put up with it. 
This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Criddle. She writes, looking for your perspective on a family issue, Paul. I have an eight-year-old nephew who is showing some mental illness signs and the professionals around here seem to be of no help. He, along with my sister, his mother, and her two other children live with my mother. He's had recent violent outbursts towards my sister and family pets. He's saying he hears voices and does not have a human brain. My sister has called the crisis hotline and they sent her to our local hospital who dismissed them after a few hours there and said to call if something else happens. He's been on and off meds for three years now. I'm worried for my mother, sister, and my nephew's other two siblings. I know that he is young, but I don't know what could happen or what his issue might be. It's hard for me to hear these things and just be helpless towards this situation. I don't have room in my apartment to take anyone in, nor the funds. My question is, what would you do in this situation, Paul? What do you think is the best way to help? I am holding anger towards my sister for putting my mother in a dangerous and stressful situation. I also worry for my nephew, the type of hell he must be going through. I feel horrible for being angry and just feel useless. Any type of advice would be appreciated. First of all, I am so sorry that all of you are going through this, especially your nephew. And, you know, one of the hardest things to make peace with is our helplessness in dealing with other people's illnesses, especially when it's a nephew or a niece and we just want to step in and run the show, but... You know, that, like I said earlier in the podcast, I think going to a support group like the National Alliance on Mental Illness, I think it would be a great place to maybe get advice or support from people with more knowledge than I would be able to pass on to you about what to do. But I know a part of that will be taking care of yourself. And dealing with your feelings of guilt and helplessness and grief and anger. And I can say this, don't judge yourself for what you're feeling. It's that you are experiencing the price of being a sensitive human being in a chaotic world. This is from the love survey filled out by myself as a pumpkin. And they write, I love that my sister can make me full-heartedly belly laugh until my abdominal muscles are sore. I love that I can make her genuinely laugh hard with my silly drawings or jokes. I love how the day that I'm writing this was and that I got to spend time with her and forgot all about the awful shit that's happened, about my suicide attempt and scars. I mean, isn't that life packed into two sentences? the sadness and the and the joy and thinking that we can avoid either well who the fuck would want to avoid joy idiot <laughs> thinking that we can avoid the pain this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself snowy trees 
He identifies as straight. He's in his 30s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. He's never been sexually abused, but he's been emotionally abused. He writes, I've recently realized that my mother used me as an emotional confidant for a long time, telling me things and displaying emotions I could not deal with at all as a young child. Any positive experiences with her? Yes, many. All things considered, my mom was excellent to me, especially considering considering her own childhood and life. I think it's great that you have uh, com- compassion for her, and I and I just anybody listening to this, or you if you're if you're listening to this, it is important to have compassion for other people, but not at the expense of compassion for ourselves. And it sounds like you are able to have compassion for yourself, um, because a lot of people will say, "Well, my you know my parent or such and such had a terrible childhood, so I should just get over this thing that happened to me." They're not mutually exclusive. You can feel sorry for someone's childhood, but not let that minimize what happened to you because it keeps you from processing the feelings. Darkest thoughts. That there is a small, sad part of me that would love to throw my life away on weed and pornography. There is part of me that doesn't feel I know how to build relationships with anyone besides my wife now. I worry I will be unable to figure out how to find some self-worth in my life. Darkest secrets. When I was 9 or 10, I exposed, partially exposed myself to a younger cousin and a family friend on separate occasions. I feel immense shame and guilt that I have contributed to ruining their lives. I think it might be time for you to stop beating yourself up about that. You were fucking 9 or 10. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Well, my dreams all surround porn and peep shows. My sex dreams aren't about sex with people. They're about buying porn or visiting peep shows. I'm embarrassed and ashamed about this. Sharing this makes me feel sad. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my younger cousin how sorry I am for partially exposing myself to him as a child. The worry, shame, and guilt that surrounds this eats away at me. That might be a good thing to talk about a, uh, with a therapist and, and get their advice on whether you might approach your cousin and share that. What, if anything, do you wish for? To find some self-worth in my life so I can be a better person in other people's lives. To have a small community of people I am in close face-to-face relationships with. To have meaning and purpose in my life. To feel part of something bigger. It is so beautiful, and I mean, you hit the nail on the head to have meaning and purpose in my life and to feel part of something bigger. That, speaking for myself, that has been the game changer for me. Have you shared these things with others? I've only shared it with my wife and therapist. I'm in my mid-30s in a new town and country and do not know how to make new friends. How do you feel after writing these things down? I don't know. Thank you for sharing all of that. And uh, I hate to sound like a broken record, but you know, a support group might be a great place to make to make some new friends. Maybe even an online support group. There's tons of online Zoom meetings these days. I got an email uh, from Karenique uh, Hare that writes, "Want thicker, fuller hair." 65% off today only. And of course, I did. You know, when I saw this, I looked at my 35% head of hair 
and thought, that number just clicks. That just makes sense to me. And so I clicked on the link and flames shot out of my USB port and burned down the house to my left. Um, nobody was able to be identified, not even their dental remains. So I think that might have been a virus. But I was able to get a hold of one of their representatives and I said, I, I want thicker, fuller hair. Toot fucking sweet. I don't care what it takes. I gave him all of my credit cards my bank account number, my social security, intimate pictures of me without a shirt, tastefully oiled up. And uh, they said, you're going to have thicker, fuller hair within a week. And I was like, this is the greatest news I've ever heard. Well, it turns out that came in the form of uh, a guy named Rick who now lives with me. He's got a thick, thick, full head of hair. And... I shouldn't have assumed that I would be the one with the thick head of hair. But I got to say, just looking at Rick, especially when the sun is low, I almost feel like that's my head of hair that I'm looking at. I don't know if that makes any sense. And Rick, if you're listening, I did not mean to make you uncomfortable. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by Soho. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, uh, was raised in a stable and safe environment, and then says, being LOL and overly sheltered. Oh, boring LOL and overly sheltered. She was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Sexual assault. I uh, didn't even know it was sexual assault for years. I hated him and wanted the worst for him. He showed me his penis when I was 11 and told me to come back later. I never did. I was scared. She's been emotionally abused. Emotional abuse from parents and peers in school. My mother loved me and did her best, but in times of need, she wasn't emotionally available. She would always talk to me like a little adult and keep me close, so I had a hard time relating to other kids. Most of the times, I went unnoticed, but sometimes I was bullied. When I started standing up for myself, it got worse any positive experiences with abusers. Yes, because I knew my parents meant well. They will always be in my corner, but was on, on those cases, one of those cases, where the parents remember one thing, but I remember other things. I wrote a letter to my mother one year after I had long accepted she would never get it. Something about that letter struck her, and finally she saw my pain. I'm 27 now. I'm still uncomfortable being too close to her, it's over now, and I've given enough chances. But too many times, broken, depressed people have children and pass their baggage to their kids. Maybe we should start doing having an official ceremony when the luggage gets passed from one generation to another. And do you accept the anxiety and the guilt, the ca- catastrophizing? I do. I am uncomfortable being a friend to her now because she was never fully my mother when I needed her to be when I was hurting the most. But she's gotten much better. I'm also uncomfortable with children. I don't have much experience with them and they seem attracted to me, but they make me totally uncomfortable. Darkest thoughts. I empathize with shooters, 
because I think that could have been me at some point. I don't make excuses for people that do that, but they didn't fall from the sky as fuck-ups. They have a history and stories that somehow people have brushed under the rug. I could never kill, but I've always had interest in mental health, and if someone cannot ignore what was uncomfortable to recognize and befriend some of these loners, maybe we wouldn't have as much devastation as we have. I think I read that right. Sometimes when people dictate, there are uh, typos in here and it gets a little confusing. One of the biggest secrets that loners and weirdos keep, especially the ones that act like they're cool with everything, is that everything is wrong. Obviously, everything in everyone can't be fixed with a little therapy, but shit, it's worth a try. So true. You know, I hope one day we're able to look back at this era and see how in the how much it is the dark ages of not only mental health but physical health, the way we that the fact that we have a system that profits from people's sickness and we call ourselves the, you know, the greatest country on earth. We fight wars to keep us safe, but when it comes to paying for somebody's cancer treatment, nope, you're on your own. Darkest secret, sexual assault. Although I don't consider that a deep, dark secret, just something I don't tell. I'm not ashamed, though, just careful who I tell. Another thing I don't tell is that I'm not, not as spiritual as everyone thinks. I believe in God, but not as others think. I've dabbled in lots of new age things. I own oracle cards, and I've gotten mind readings and psychic readings on men I've been interested in. That last one, the amount of money I've spent on psychics, might be a dark secret, LOL. I know things about them that they think I don't know. I also like gay porn. I won't be telling anyone about that. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm 27 and never had sex. So I've thought about this a lot. Well, since I know what poverty is like, I'd love to be a financial dominatrix. I want to have sex, but at the same time, I'm not desperate or overwhelmingly interested. I just want to make someone pay me without the bullshit. I like the idea of having sex outside or someone watching me masturbate. I love dirty talk and stimulating other senses. I like creativity. Nothing too crazy. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Nothing. I'm not dying to tell anyone anything like that. I'm open with conditions, just careful. You know what? I think that's good. I think there's a fine line between shutting down and and you know, just opening up to anyone and everyone and then finding out, oh, some you know, some people are not safe to open up to. And in my experience, it takes time to get a sense of who is safe to open up to. And to start off small. You know, and just kind of based on the their reaction, decide, oh, do I want to share this this other thing? What, if anything, do you wish for? A lot. <laughs> I love how vague that is. I don't know, but I want a lot of it. Have you shared these things with others? Only online. I'd share if I felt comfortable with someone. No comfort, no share. How do you feel after writing these things down? Normal. Thank you for that. What else we got? And finally, we got we got an awful moment. 
filled out by a woman who calls herself Sexy Nun. She writes, the other day I was dealing with paralyzing anxiety and couldn't even leave my house. When this happens, it's usually because I fear I will embarrass myself in public. After struggling with this agoraphobic episode for hours, I finally called my husband and let him know how I was feeling. He suggested I walk to meet him on his way home from work, and then I'd have an excuse to get out of the house and a reward for leaving by being able to meet him outside. I took his advice and left the house to meet him on his way home. It helped get outside, away from my thoughts. When I met up with him, I felt instantly better and safe. He helped me as we walked back to our place, and I began to relax. We enjoyed the nice fall weather, the setting sun, and the window shopping on our way back. Our house is near a sex shop. I walk by it every day and have such a strong urge to go in and browse, but I usually tell myself to just keep walking because of my anxiety. I fear I will say or do something embarrassing or that people will see me inside from the sidewalk and judge me for being there, etc. I also just feel weird about expressing my sexuality in general, which then leads to me talking myself out of going into the store. Blame it on my Catholic upbringing, my parents' slut-shaming, or my gender conditioning. On this particular day, we walk by the shop again, and my husband suggests that we go in and treat ourselves. Feeling good about my recent triumph to venture out and meet him, I agree. We went inside the shop, and I ended up finding an outfit I liked, a sexy nun ensemble, just in time for Halloween. We make the purchase, and I feel giddy about wearing the outfit at home. There's a church around the corner from our house in the sex shop. We live in a neighborhood that is historically a borough for Portuguese immigrants, but has since been gentrified. Still, some remnants of the original neighborhood are there. With a sexy outfit in hand, I exit the store, and I shit you not, I make eye contact with an old nun. <laughs> or what you thought was an old nun. Maybe maybe it was somebody in, coming to return the costume. Or maybe it was an actual nun on her way to the sex shop to get an outfit of your clothes. That might have been the stupidest way to end a podcast. (laughs) Maybe I'll make a top 10 list of the stupidest ways that I've ever ended an episode of the podcast. (laughs) Oh, thank you guys for your surveys. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you are out there and you're struggling, never, ever, ever forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.